Hey guys, I'm Jacob Robinson. I am your Pillion Campus Pastor as we get ready to launch uh, in a few months. We are really excited. So I actually went to school down here. I, I played football out here on this field that we're beside right now. And we just have a group of people that really want to reach this community that are from out this way or either just have a heart for it. And it has been pretty cool to see as this started as a conversation and then it turned into eight people getting together that quickly turned into 18 people and has now grown to over 20 people. And so as we continue to grow, we're looking more and more like we're a congregation and not a small group. And so we are excited to be able to reach this community and just be the hands and feet of Christ as we, uh, as we come out in the Pillion area. So if you are new to Radius, we call this an All Radius Sunday where all of our campuses do the same thing at, in the same way. So I'm, I'm here live, but I'm on video all the other places. We do that 10 times a year. It kind of holds us together. At the other campuses, they get an old guy preaching occasionally. At your campus, you just get the same old guy, right? That's kind of what we do. We work in some, thank you. Good answer, good answer. Oh, uh, man, and one of the things we like to do when we're all together is celebrate stuff like that. So, so Radius Pillion, there's six campuses presently. That'll be the seventh. They kick off in January. And I'll tell you why we're excited about it. <laughs> For one, why are you excited about Pillion, right? Like, like it, it's growing, actually growing rapidly. We're, we're excited because of that guy. Like, this is one of the things that we hope the Lord provides for us or leaders that are passionate about a place. And Jacob grew up there. He loves the Lord. We are super confident in Jacob and Sindel as they're ready to go. We're really excited about Radius White Knoll. They're sending them. So for those of y'all at Radius Lexington, that means this is one of our grandbabies. So that ought to be extra. We ought to spend a lot of money on them, right? Like, this is this. It ought to be extra good. Um, and then, then finally, one of the things that excites me the most, we have two families from here at Radius Lexington that are going to go because uh, they have a, a connection to Pillion. So, man, that's what we're hoping that will happen across all six campuses. We'll send folks to new places and plant new churches for the glory of God. So if you know somebody in Pillion that you need to connect to Jacob, write it on a card. You can shoot me a text or somebody a text, and we'll, we'll get you that information. We are presently all together talking about trying to plant a church in Newberry. We've had some conversations with some families over there. There's, there's, as I like to say, there's some smoke in Newberry. We just don't know if there's a fire yet. We're looking for a leader to go plant Radius Newberry. So you can, you can be praying about that yourself. If you want to go, let me know. All right, we'll have, we'll have a conversation. But you may know somebody. We, we don't start one without a leader. So we're looking for a leader for, for a Radius Newberry in the future. And then we got a couple more in our pocket that we hope to roll out in 2024. As you know, if you've been at Radius Lexington for a while, we love playing churches out of here. So we hope to do that again soon. Let me pray, and uh, we'll jump right into this topic. Proud of Jacob, Lord. It just makes me happy even to watch that video, watching him uh, come to faith and be baptized here and grow in a hunger for your word, and then... Uh, Man, working over there at New Corps, working hard and, and, and serving at Radius White Knoll, just kind of slowly made his way to having a hunger for the church. And now, now we get to send him, Lord. So thank you for letting us participate in that. We, we're thankful that you use us and that we have stories like that. We're praying, Lord. We, we're agreeing right now. We'd love to have somebody send a Newberry. It seems like it's ripe and ready. 
So who would you send, Lord? Or would you send? If you don't want us to go, then so be it, Lord. We want to follow you. And, Lord, we, uh, we want to just keep doing it here at Radius Lexington. We want to keep sending out church plants and church planters. So pray that you would raise up folks inside of here, and some of us would be willing to go and, and start new stuff all throughout the Midlands to your glory and for those neighborhoods, for the folks in them, that they could experience your grace and truth. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you're new, we've been in a series, we call it Born This Way. When we say series, it means we, uh, we kind of came up with a topic and we wanted to teach on it. Normally at Radius, we pick a book of the Bible and we work our way through it. In a few weeks, we'll start on 2 Timothy and we'll work our way all the way through it. In the spring, we'll work our way all the way through the long book of Acts. Um, that's our norm. But we do like on occasion to pick out uh, topics that we think are really uh, appropriate for the times. And sexuality certainly is appropriate for these times. Uh, if you live in the United States of America, you don't talk about money and sexuality, you're kind of missing what's going on in our world, right? Like you can't turn on TV this afternoon and not see both of those things pr presented in, in the wrong fashion most of the time. Uh, so we try to talk about both of those topics annually one way or another. This time we decided to take a long series and talk about sexuality. Um, it, it seems like it's it's uh, got this tension. You can feel it in the room, but not as much as when we talk about money. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Like The drug of choice in America is clearly still money, not sex, but it's a close second. See, it got quiet just me saying that. That's funny right there. Uh, so in America, sexuality and, and the way our countries work, man, they, they've been linked. You could go back to the 20s, and we have kind of this what they would call a sexual revolution, and things kind of we kind of lost our mind as a nation. You go to the 60s, some of y'all lived through that. Like, we lost our mind as a nation sexually. And then in this last decade, and probably a little bit of a decade extended, many would say we've lost our mind. Uh, 2005, Brokeback Mountain, the movie was produced and put out. And they began to kind of open the door for entertainment to press same-sex romantic relationships. Katy Perry came out with I Kissed a Girl, 2008, and it had a great rhythm, a, a great tune, and the next thing you know, you're singing it, right? Uh, June 26, 2015, our Supreme Court made same-sex marriage the same as the traditional definition of marriage. In other words, they changed the definition of marriage. And so in a nation that through, throughout its history has sexualized everything, and it seems like we're rapidly increasing that. And we have this deep aversion to loneliness. It's an interesting time for those of us that know Jesus. And so we thought we'd just talk about that very directly. If you don't believe that we have a deep aversion to loneliness, turn on your radio on the way home. Right? You can listen to Christian, you can listen to country, you can listen to hip-hop, you can listen to pop, you listen to whatever you want to. About five songs in, they're going to talk about being lonely. And that we need to have this solution to loneliness. And then they're going to point to one way or another to solve that problem. Almost always, something to do with sex. So just, just, we're not acting like this is just an out there problem. That's, this is a conversation that's happening in here across the country. The Methodist denomination is split right down the middle on this topic. 
I have two guys that I have quoted from this stage that right now I'd be hesitant to quote because they've gone opposite directions on this subject. One, uh, as of late, has sounded almost affirming to same-sex romantic relationships being biblically appropriate. The other has gone to some extreme ways almost damning, as if a romantic same-sex relationship is the unpardonable sin. And you kind of hear both of them, and their tones are pretty drastically different. They both make me really uncomfortable. Uh, this guy would say he's driven by grace, and he is, is taking his position because of the gospel. And this guy, on the other hand, is going to say he's driven by truth, and he's taking his stance because of the gospel. So for me to sit up here and talk about it is humbling because I know I cannot have the right tone because I'm a sinner. I've got the wrong tone. I can rarely ever get the right tone because I'm a sinner. Let's just talk about that frankly before we get started. But my king, Jesus, always had the right tone. He was sinless. He could talk about anything. He could talk about it with anybody. And he would get his tone just right for every individual. So when you have a conversation like this, getting the tone right is difficult. I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to uh, overwhelm who I am and speak for himself. Now, Jesus, even being perfect walking this earth, he would go back to another authority. We'll get to that here in just a minute. He would go back to the Word of God and to creation, and that's how he got the truth in line. Now, he, he, he was at creation. He was the creator, and yet he would go back to creation and talk about it. He wrote the Word of God through men, and yet he would go back to those writings to, to get the truth laid down flat. But then he would also do it with the right tone. I don't know if you've read much, but open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or all four. Read all the way through it, and you'll be shocked by his tone and how much time he spends with all sorts of people. He's for people all the way through the book. He's for them, not against them. He's for them. He literally says that in John chapter 3. He listens. He has time. He'll be seen with children. In those days, nobody wanted to be seen with children. He'd be seen with women. In that, in that season, ladies, you were second-class citizens. He would be seen with the poor. As a matter of fact, it seemed like he had more conversations with the poor than the wealthy. And he'd be seen with sinners. He'd spend time with sinners. He'd have conversations with sinners. He'd listen to sinners. <laughs> That's the good news for everybody in the room, because you won. But in the New Testament and in the Gospels, they would actually show their sin. And, and it's, it's pretty amazing to watch Jesus get his tone right and yet still deal grace and truth. John uh, captures it a couple times that I think is pretty interesting. John chapter 5, Jesus heals this invalid by the pool of Siloam. So this guy has massive physical issues, and now he can walk, and he's whole, and he comes back to Jesus after being healed, and there's a conversation. I don't have time to talk about it. And Jesus basically says, hey, I, I healed you. You look good, 
but go and sin no more. Stop sinning. So like he had this. You're going, wait a minute. You just got, let the dude party a little bit, right? He ain't never walked before. Let him go have a party and have some fun for a little bit. He's never been able to have that kind of fun. And Jesus is like, no, I healed you. Bro, I made you whole so that you could live like I made you to live and flourish like I made you to live. So don't go sin. Then there's a story told in John chapter 8. John captures these stories way better than I could ever tell them. NLT says that she was taken in the act of adultery. Crazy story. I always wonder where the man is, right, when you read the story. But Jesus comes kind of to her rescue. You have to read the story. I can't give you all the ins and outs. And he really protects her, and he loves her in some ways that are really amazing to watch as he has his tone right. But what's he say after, after a whole freeing of her? Go and sin no more. So on the one hand... He's holding out grace, and on the other hand, he's holding out truth, and he does it over and over and over in the Gospels. And I, I want to tell you, that's what we at Radius want to do. We want to humble ourselves and ask for his tone and his truth and humble ourselves to what the Word of God says and hold it out there in humility. Romans 6 says this, it's great. They're already having this problem. The church is just getting started. We're 2,000 years in. They're just a, a, a few decades in. And here's what Paul writes to the churches in Rome. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Well, if his grace wipes away sin and we get to see his grace, why don't we just keep on sinning? Of course not. Since you've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? It's a very simple but straightforward statement. Hey, grace and truth go hand in hand. Piper uh, summarizes this really well. Let me read it to you. Grace is not, this is John Piper. Grace is not simply leniency when we've sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. So when me and you come up and take bread and juice here in a little bit when we worship, we come up and celebrate that God demonstrated grace for us by the death of his son on the cross. That's a celebration for us because we needed grace to cover our sin. But we also purpose in our hearts not to go on sinning because of celebration of what he's done on our behalf. So it should bring humility every Sunday because we know ourselves. Mark chapter 10 Jesus is dealing with a Pharisee, the self-righteous. Now, Jesus had a little different tone with self-righteous. He would get sarcastic. He would forcefully rebuke them at times, but he was still for them. You flip to John chapter four, 3 and see that. He's, he's for them. He's actually trying to crack that shell of self-righteousness and get them to be able to see him for who he was and see themselves for who they were, broken sinners. So he'd be real direct uh, oftentimes with them. And he would challenge their truth. A little phrase going around in our world right now, my truth, your truth. Jesus would present himself as the truth, and yet he would continue. He'd still go back to the word of God as the truth. Not my truth, not your truth, his truth based on what he had written. Let me read it to you. Mark chapter 10, some Pharisees, self-righteous folks, you already don't like them, right? Me either. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with the question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? 
And Jesus answered them with a question. Matter of fact, if you get an argument, this is a great play. Come back with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? So what's he do? They're smart guys, so he puts a question back to them because they like to talk. So he comes back to them and lets them talk and say what their definition. But what is he really doing? He's pointing them back to the original. This is how we were designed. Look at the word of God. What does it say? Here's what they say. Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said, a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. Verse 5, Jesus responded. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. Jesus consistently throughout his teaching will move past what's on the line and get straight to your heart. Deal with it directly. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. It's an interesting little response to this question about divorce. It's got some stuff laid in it that I'd really like for us to look at. One, Jesus points back to the word for his authority, for what the truth is. And then he points back to what? To creation. He does it over and over in the New Testament. Paul does it over and over when they talk about marriage. Specifically, they point back to creation. I don't know if you picked up on it. I'll help you pick up on it. Clearly, in the passage, he's saying to those of us that are married that marriage is permanent. It's a one-time commitment to your spouse, right? It's, he's clearly saying that in the passage, and he connects that back to the image of God and to creation all the way back to the beginning. So any problems we have with the one-time permanent commitment, we look, go back to original sin and the fact that sin is actually proved out in our own lives, right? But what else does he do? He makes it abundantly clear that marriage is only between a male and a female. He actually ties Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, and he connects that conversation back to creation that you're made in the image of God. So anything challenging a marriage between anything other than a male and a female is an affront to creation to being made in the image of God. And you have to then connect it to original sin and our own sin that we demonstrate on a regular basis. So male and female in one flesh in those passages, you put them together and you take them back. The authority comes from creation. So God's truth, which if you believe in him and if you don't, that's, that's a whole other conversation, is really clear, not only in this passage, but in others that I'll read to you. So Jesus is saying that there is a holy sexuality. This book, uh, I've been pushing it. If you've got questions on this subject, you want to discuss it more, it's way more practical than I can be in 35 minutes sitting up here. Uh, it's by a guy named Christopher Yuan. It is outstanding. He is a, uh, a former practicing homosexual, and he will uh, talk uh, openly about that and then talk about how the scriptures transformed him. Pretty crazy story how God grabbed him and saved him. And he would say, God didn't save me out of homosexuality. He says, God saved me from my sin, just like he did everybody else. And he saved me to holy sexuality. It's, it's, it's great. He's got this quote. I loved it. I thought I'd read it today. It says this. Christopher says this. Any distortion of marriage, whether divorce Adultery, premarital sex, or same-sex marriage is not, contrary, not only contrary to God's will or his word, as we've seen demonstrated,
but it also is an affront to the very image of God. We're saying he screwed up in creation. Did you catch the list? It was not just about same sex. It was divorce, adultery, premarital sex, and same sex marriage. It's an affront to the very image of God, how we're designed, how we're supposed to work, how things were supposed to flourish, how people were supposed to be healthy. It's an affront to the original design. Let me just be clear. If you believe in Jesus, you have to believe in creation. You can argue how long it took to create. We can have that conversation offline. But you can't believe in Jesus and not believe in creation. You can believe that he walked the earth, but you can't believe in him as God unless you believe in creation. If you believe in creation, then you have to ask this question. Am I going to submit to the creator and play by his, not rule book, it's, it's not like this rule book that you got to worry about. It's the owner's manual. It's how it's supposed to work. Uh, Yuan says this about the church, which I think is really healthy, especially for our single folks in the room. He says, uh, the church is full of folks that are either supposed to be faithful in marriage or have chastity in singleness. That's holy sexuality. That's how this thing works. It's full of people that know Jesus. And if we're married, we're supposed to say true. And if we're uh, a single, then we're supposed to chasten ourselves and stay pure. Sounds easy enough, right? <laughs> Except we've, we've been talking about original sin and we deal with this. We can't walk out of this building without dealing with this. This is not a new conversation. You and I are dealing with it because of technology at speeds that has never been dealt before with before, but they're talking about all this in the Old Testament. Ain't none of this in the... I'm going to read you some hard passages. I'm going to try to read them with the right tone. I want you to hear them. Deuteronomy chapter 22. So this is the beginning. God's laying out the law. He's created man and woman. He's given the law to show them how he meant for it to be. A woman must not put on a man's clothing. Clothing. And a man must not put on a woman's clothing. Anyone who does this is detestable in the sight of the Lord your God. I feel harsh. However, we watch Jesus walk and talk in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and hold to the truth and still have time and ability. He would know exactly, he'd know exactly what to do with the waiter who's trans or with your friend who's asking questions about their sexuality. Jesus would know exactly the right tone, the right way, but he'd have this standard, this truth. He points back to it right here in Mark. He points back to these passages like in Deuteronomy. He goes, that's the truth according to God. It's the truth. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 18, still in the law. Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable sin. However, you think Jesus would Know what to do with your gay neighbors? Absolutely. He'd have this ease about him. We'd be all uptight about it. He, he, he understands both that male and female were made in the image of God, and he's witnessed, right, the fact that you and I were born into original sin, and we've been dealing with it forever, and it's impacted us in some catastrophic ways, all of us. If you think it's just the Old Testament law deal, let me, let me just read to you Romans chapter 1. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. 
Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and indeed instead indulged in sin with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. As a result of their sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty that they deserved. Quite honestly, there's not much in the Bible more clear than this subject. But there's a lot of clarity on how we're supposed to live in the Bible. And Jesus was able to take that clarity and bring it to life in your neighborhood. And now it's on you. And it's on me to be able to do both, distribute grace, and hold to the truth. But then it gets personal. It's easy for somebody to stand up and read. I mean, it doesn't take you about a second to find the verses. But then it gets really personal. My child struggles with same-sex attraction. I have a friend that's transitioning. I got folks in my community that are bisexual, and they're, they're my friends. They've been my friends for 20 years. What do I do now? It's personal. It's like, uh, there's the Bible. I just read it, and it sounded harsh because of the world we live in. But now, now I got friends. Now, well, what do I do with my friends? I'm not, I'm not leaving my friends over this. A seminary professor I read about in Yuan's book uh, had a pretty clear understanding of this, these passages, and uh, his son came out as gay. And uh, it's a really interesting read in here. So the seminary professor said that he had to reimagine the scriptures. I thought that was interesting, and I kind of get it. Like when stuff gets personal, it puts this pressure on you like no other. So he reimagined the scriptures, and, and actually in this book, if you want to read it, he goes through how he reimagines Genesis chapter 2. He actually takes the Hebrew words and he bends them a little bit. As a matter of fact, almost everyone who's reimagining this subject has to bend a word. They'll bend a word in Romans 1, or they'll bend a word in Genesis 2, and they have to bend them in order to get to where they want to go. It's a uh, dangerous road to travel, right? Isn't that what Satan said to Eve in the garden or something like it? Hey, I want you to reimagine what God meant with this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's not really what he meant. That didn't work out great for us or her or Adam or mankind. The LGBT gets pretty frustrated with the church, and rightfully so, because we want to hold them to not reimagining those passages, yet we want to reimagine many passages. I don't know if you know how that Mark 10 passage ended. Let me read it to you. Later, when he was alone, he had his disciples in the house, and they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. They're like, hey, you're telling me not to reimagine it, but you reimagine it. And so today, as I thought about talking about this subject, it's a day to humble ourselves and hold our lives out, protect, particularly when it comes to our sexuality. Repent and have an attitude of repentance. When it comes to divorce, we have lots of folks in here that have walked through a divorce, and it's painful, and you got the story to tell. 
The Bible's pretty clear on why you can or can't have a divorce. As a matter of fact, it, it explicitly encourages us not to ever get divorced. And then opens a small door when there's infidelity or abandonment. And yet still would argue to try to stay married. Not just for happiness, right? But for the glory of God. Which is easy to say, really, really hard to live when you're in it, and really hard to live when you have somebody you love in it. And then remarriage. I've had some terrible conversations around remarriage because the Bible gives clarity on when you can remarry. So I get to have those fun, not-so-fun conversations occasionally. And I have to ask myself, do I want to... I, I, Truly, in the conversation, I want to reimagine what I've read. But I, I would just encourage you, as people at Radius and as people at the church, man, I don't know if I trust somebody who's reimagining it. What's their authority? What they going to lean back on when it all comes down? Had a uh, breakfast at Waffle House. He has to meet at 5.30 a.m. because he got to be at work. So I... I'm half awake at the beginning, 5.30 a.m., and he told me the other day, uh, he sat right back there, started coming to Radius, he came for six months, and he says over and over, he'd get with his girlfriend on the way back, and they'd go, man, I can't believe he loved it. He loved y'all, he loved the worship, he loved that I shot it straight, and I used regular words, and we've been hanging out for a while, and then he came on a Sunday like this. He's like, and you said something about living together, and I've been bragging on what you're saying all the time to my girlfriend and all my friends, and you said, hey, if you're living together, you ought to move out to the glory of God. He's like, that hit me a little different than all the other sermons you preached. I liked you, and I still kind of liked you. I didn't know what to do with it. So on the way to the car, I was completely silent. We got in the car. We looked at each other, and we go, we, we just had to decide. Like, are we going to reimagine it and leave? Or, are we going to do this? And they did. They moved out, got married. Uh, really proud of where they're at right now. But that started with humility. I would challenge you, even if, if you want to disagree with me, at least read something. At least read something and be challenged. Challenge your mind and your intellect. Uh, we live in a culture for, for single, and it's not just single folks, the hookup culture these days. It's just a lot of married folks participate too. All they got to do is get on the phone to find somebody, try to solve the loneliness problem. And today's the day to repent. Like, like show it to God. He knows it. Everybody else in the room may not, but to show it to him. And I, I, experientially, you're going to have to show it to somebody else and get in community and have somebody walk you away from that difficult place. <laughs> the virtual world is killing us, right? We got men and women now. Women are the fastest growing group of folks participating in, in the virtual world. 70% now, I think, of women in, in certain age group. It's killing us. So today's the great day in humility to say, it's killing me. It's eating my insides out. It's destroying my marriage if I've got one. It's, it's, I can feel it taking away my life. Let me put it out there. You're going to have to get in community. You're probably going to have to go to somebody and say, I need it blocked everywhere. I had a great conversation with somebody here the other day. They just talked about how this used to be an issue, and they got everything blocked. Now they talk about it in community, and they've got some freedom. Praise God. We spent... Four Sundays on male and female, we talked about 
men kind of want to give up responsibility. We see Adam do it in the garden, and, and ladies kind of want autonomy, want to take over responsibility. And so you got this battle, and I would just go, that's the beginning of the slippery slope where all of this comes unwound. You and I give in and reimagine the passages to forgive ourselves, and it's why we can't really hold anybody else into account because we know who we are. I want to encourage you this morning, like, it ain't about who you are. It's about what he said. And then we saw how he modeled it. God himself came as the word and as the truth and walked the earth and was able to be with folks, for folks, and yet represent the truth. Man, this ain't new. The early church crushed it. They lived in violent, sexualized times. They didn't, have, uh, they didn't have all the technology, but this stuff was in front of them all the time. I've told you this before. Because they believed that we were made in the image of God, they would oppose anything that opposed the image of God. They opposed the gladiator events. They wouldn't attend, and people called them uh, socially awkward or distinct. They wouldn't go to war to take somebody else's stuff. They defend their stuff, but they wouldn't go to war in Caesar's wars where he's trying to conquer the world because they felt like they were taking lives of people with, made in the image of God. They were opposed to same-sex romantic relationships because they believed that it was opposed to male and female made in the image of God and marriage, which was formed at the beginning. They opposed all heterosexuality outside of marriage. So they promoted holy sexuality, if you will. They were the most radically generous with their stuff and hospitality of anybody in the culture. So you couldn't take your eyes off of them, even though they held this truth. And in some ways it was offensive. They weren't out killing you with it like angry folks. They were inviting you in their homes and feeding you and loving on you. They Embrace diversity. You had all sorts of races and socioeconomic groups. They would all be together because there's so much joy inside. And eventually they started calling each other brothers and sisters because they were connected in Jesus. They weren't afraid of being together as brothers or as sisters. It didn't have to become sexual. Some of their deepest relationships were with people of the same gender, but it was because it was connected in Jesus, not sexuality. Help us not run from that. They promoted women like nobody else in the culture. But they still would say there's only one way to God, through Jesus. So many of them died. Many of them were martyred for their faith, and yet the gospel exploded across the region because of this little early church that could distribute truth and grace. And as much as possible with men, they would try to do it in the right tone. So you have this great little gang of folks made up of married folks and single, right? Faithfully married and chastity and singleness all partnered together as equals, by the way. Like, like the single folks in here are absolutely equal to the married folks. This is one of the shames of the church, actually. We haven't always done a good job of it here. Every bit is capable of representing Jesus in our culture. 
We come with this joy together. We confess our sins together. And yet this humility and boldness that are interconnected because we know who we are. We are born into sin. And we know that he made us in the image of God. And then we know all about this. Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. We don't have time to read it. Uh, he basically says to all the people, hey, in Corinth, hey, if you want to get married, get married. If you don't, don't. We got stuff to do. That's more or less what he says. He, 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 you want to read it? He'll give you direct details. But he goes, we got stuff to do. We're worshiping Jesus. As a matter of fact, single folks, you potentially could be more effective than the married folks. Because not only are we called to reproduce, right, like, Physically, we're called to reproduce by making disciples, and you could actually have more time to make disciples. But if you're going to get married, be two holes, not two halves, trying to, trying to make a hole. Be two holes. Come together, both walking with the Lord, and be healthy. We got stuff to do. Luke chapter 13 reads like this. I thought a good way to end the uh, header on it in the NLT is a call to repentance. And I thought with the news real, the way it's reading this week, it was an appropriate passage. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices in the temple. It was the, uh, wasn't a terrorist attack. It was the authority coming in and killing people while they were worshiping. It was horrible. The news was spreading all over the land. No newspapers, no internet, right? So you couldn't see across the world, but right there in their town, folks have been killed while worshiping. And Jesus takes something awful and evil like that, and he flips it. And I think we ought to take the newsreel and flip it on ourselves. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Great question to ask on sexuality, but great question to ask about yourself. Do you think those folks were worse sinners than all the other people in Galilee? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. He takes this, this evil story and applies it to all, tries to get everybody to look in the mirror. And we talk about sexuality. I hope everybody's looking in the mirror. Nobody should leave here feeling elite. Reason another, he, tells another, he reminds them of other news. And what about the 18 people? I love that he puts the number on, the actual number of people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, just a random act, an accident. Were they, worse sinners in, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, I'll tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. One way or another, this thing's coming to the end. Some folks right now, with this stuff happening in Israel, man, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if Russia and Iran partner up, we need to go look at some Bible prophecy, man. It, 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 it could get real. We could be near the end. Every church in the history of the world has talked about us being near the end, and we're doing it too. And that thing line up, they line up, and Israel nukes Iran for a minute. It's going to get wild. This could be the end. Are you ready for the end? Like Jesus is saying, stop worrying about them and look at yourselves and repent. And here's the final story he tells. And Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden, and it came, he came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years, and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. 
The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then let's cut it down. Jesus is calling us to look in the mirror and say, hold your stuff out today. Repent. Do it now. I keep waiting for that fig tree. A part of producing fruit as a follower of Jesus is holding your stuff out to him and allowing him to examine it and then showing your allegiance to him by rooting it out. We celebrate Lord's Supper every Sunday. Uh, one of the really cool things about the Lord's Supper is the, Jesus tells us to do this until he comes back. Like he ate with the disciples, and he says, hey, y'all keep doing this in remembrance of me until he comes, until he comes back. And when he comes back, guess what's going to happen? We're going to have a party. We're going to have a party around this supper because it's, it, we're, we're finally with him in relationship in a world that just yells and yells about loneliness. Jesus is saying, hey, hey, I'm offering you the ultimate relationship. As a matter of fact, in heaven, we won't be married, he says. He says, well, I'll be single. I'll be single, folks. You know who we're going to be married to? We're going to be married to him. And it's, it's going to be the ultimate relationship. He holds marriage up way high. Like all the scripture holds marriage up as this great relationship, this depth of relationship between two humans, but it's penultimate, right? Like it's pointing to the ultimate relationship that we begin while we're here on earth, but we don't fully receive it to with him. You know how the marriages worked back in the day. At the beginning, the groom would come and propose and actually would sign a contract. And he'd pay a dowry, right? I mean, you know, like if he's rich, you're going to get a bunch of donkeys. Or, or that's how he paid a dowry, right? In our case, on Sundays, we celebrate that the groom came and paid our dowry and signed a covenant with us, a contract that saves our souls. So when you come up and take bread and juice here in a minute, like it's a celebration. While we hold our hands out and repent, because we were born into sin and we've acted like sinners, we come up and we recognize that he actually made a way for us to have the ultimate relationship with him. And so we celebrate. And then after the contract, you wait till the wedding day, and the groomsmen would kind of create this train through town. Way better than our weddings, right? Like it, they, this train through town, and all the groomsmen looking good, and they're working their way to the bride's house. And the key for the bride was to be ready. She had to be ready. She'd have lookouts out. She didn't always know exactly what day, but usually he, so they'd know around the day to be ready, to be looking out, to be looking for the groom to come. And so it's like all this anticipation of this day when it's all going to be right, when that, that great human relationship was going to be put together. Hey, that's what we're doing. We're looking at the contract on Sunday and the blood that was spilled to pay the price, and we're going to sing a little bit, right, because we're looking forward to this relationship that we have got with God being fully in full effect. And then he's going to come. And when he comes, it's going to be a party. Man, in the Old Testament, when they had weddings, man, I don't know what they did for work because they took days and days off. Not just the wedding party. Everybody took days and days off. And they partied. They had, they had so much fun together around the wedding. You and I, like, it ain't going to be days. It's going to be all of eternity. So as we in our country, like we, we're so scared of loneliness, one day there ain't going to be any more loneliness. You can be married and lonely, by the way. 
One day you're going to be with Jesus and there will be no more loneliness and you will experience a relationship that brings joy and, and things that this earth we can't really even imagine at this point. That's why we sing. Because he signed the contract, it's done. If you believe, it's done. He's on his way. Are you ready? One of the ways to be ready this morning is to repent or confess. When he comes, there ain't going to be nothing else to do but join him in the celebration. If you haven't met him, if you don't believe him in him, you're going to miss all that. And uh, we, we love it that you're here. Because this thing that we've been given, we didn't earn. We're not elite. We're saved by his grace. We love to give it to you. Jesus, we love you. We worship you as the creator. We uh, are going to say humbly, Lord, that we believe that you made us exactly how you meant to. And you gave us your word so that when, when our sin would rise up in us and we try to reimagine what you did all those years ago, that it'd be clear how you made us. And yet still, Lord, as we read your word together, it's just hard, Lord. You know, for us, we live in some crazy times and we want to live like you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us walk in truth and grace on a daily basis. Give us boldness and humility. Even today, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Even right now, Lord, pray that you would give men and women the courage to deal with stuff in their heart with you. We thank you, Jesus, and we worship you now by taking the bread and juice because you dealt with our sin directly and eternally. And we're so thankful for the freedom that we have because of your great sacrifice. Thank you for paying it all, Jesus. Amen.